0: This morning we're continuing our series looking at the glory of God in the salvation of sinners. And we're going to look at Acts eleven eighteen. 18, but bef- well, actually we're actually going to look at just three words in Acts eleven eighteen. Before we look at those words, I want to first uh, lay, lay a foundation so we really understand what those words in Acts 11 are speaking to us, what, are, what they're teaching to us here this morning. We sang a song this morning, and I didn't, uh, Willem Vandler picked the song, since I didn't know we were actually singing this song this morning. I had my sermon prepared already, and then saw what song we were singing, and it fit. Because we sang a song this morning that had these words, "I I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeem me for his own. I know not how the saving faith to me he did impart nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. I know not how the spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith in him. The song reflects the experience, the personal experience of every Christian, every believer. It is seeking to plumb the depths of the mysteries of God. What exactly happened to me? Why am I a Christian? Why did I believe? Why am I converted? Why do I take such comfort and have such joy in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why have I repented? Why do I see sin as disgusting and see the holiness of God as glorious yet fearful? If our answer to any of these questions about why I'm a Christian, why I've come to believe is I've done it. I had enough sense, I had enough wisdom, I had enough spiritual fortitude, and I, I did it myself. If that's your answer to any of those questions, then I can say with relatively high degree of certainty that you're not really a Christian. Because no Christian is going to take credit for their own salvation. No Christian is going to boast in what they have done. Going to give all glory to God. But perhaps your answer is that you have Worked with the grace of God. God was working and you worked with him. Imagine this. Imagine on the day of judgment. that You're standing shoulder to shoulder with friends and family members. Of people that you know. That have the same experiences as you've had. Who've heard the gospel just as you've had. Who've been the same church as you've had. Who've been exposed to the word of God as you've had. And they did not believe. And you did. You're standing there in judgment and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You're trusting him. You're clinging on him. And others who have heard the same as you do not believe. What's the difference? What's the difference? Is the difference something that God has done in you? Or is the only difference on that day of judgment something that you did and something that they did not do? I think all of us Every Christian is going to come to the conclusion that God is the one who has saved me, that God, from first to last, he granted me life. He imparted to me his grace. And if it was not for the grace of God, I would be just like them who rejected his truth. Every Christian intuitively knows that God has granted them life, that God is the author of salvation. That's why this hymn resonates with all of us. We we wonder into the depths, how could God have done this to me, a wretched sinner, to grant me such grace? And mercy. We're going to look at a truth this morning that I wish to call conquering grace. Conquering grace, the grace of God that would convert a sinner. Conquering grace. That is, Christians are sinners whose hearts have been conquered by God's grace. God has overcome them and has redeemed them by his grace. So we're going to go this morning before we come back to Acts chapter 11. We're going to look at the need for this conquering grace of God. And then we're going to look at the product of this conquering grace, the result of it. And then we're going to look at the glory of God's conquering grace. Okay, that's where we're going this morning. So first, the need for conquering grace. A few weeks ago, we talked about sin and the problem of sin. We looked at Romans chapter eight In Romans chapter eight. There are two verses there in verses seven, eight that say this. It says for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That is on our own humanity. Every single one of us are unable to submit to God's law, unable to obey what God has demanded of us. Unable to please him. It says, Our situation, apart from God's grace, is desperately hopeless. Can you imagine? Being accountable because you've been created by God who is all holy. He is all powerful. His standards are perfect and perfection. And here we are as wretched sinners, unable to obey his law, unable to submit to him, unable to please him. And he is the just judge and he is going to judge and condemn. And those who fall short of his glorious standard are going to be cast into the lake of fire. How hopeless is that? Completely without hope in this world. That is... The case of every single individual apart from the grace of God. We're accountable to this God. Not only does it say that in Romans 8, 7 and 8, 1 Corinthians 2, 14 reminds us of our condition. Natural man is unable to understand the things of God. Unable to receive it. Unable to see the wisdom and the glory and the power in the gospel. Blinded. Hearts are blind. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are by nature children of wrath. This is what we're born into. We are born into condemnation. We're children of God's wrath, His judgment. It's at this point that Christianity is so unique. And what the Bible says about man is so unique. We had a reminder of this on Friday night. How how false religions will either lower their view of God, take God off his pedestal of honor and glory, or will raise man up, or do both. This is where Christianity is so unique because it tells us the real condition of mankind is one of desperate hopelessness. And that our problem is not without. It's not that our circumstances are difficult and that we need someone to come rescue us from our circumstance. It's not that bad things are happening to good people it's that bad people have corrupted God's good creation the problem is from within the reason why we are unable to submit to God's law is not because of our circumstances and temptations around us it's because our heart is wicked it's because our heart loves sin, our heart is born in rebellion against God we do not want him in our natural state we're afflicted with sin and we all come under God's judgment with no hope of rescue or escape found within ourselves or any institution created by man in this world. From this reality, we see the need for God's grace. It, it, God must be gracious. He must show us favor. you I mean by His grace, His, His unmerited favor. There's no way that we can merit God's favor in our condition. There is a desperate, cry, a need for God to show grace because we're so afflicted by sin. And so this grace must be conquering grace to conquer our sinful hearts. You know, you can imagine us as people in a prison where we are shackled on our hands, shackled on our feet, and we're in this cold, dark dungeon, you know, way under the earth. We have no idea where we are. We haven't seen the sun or the moon or stars in what seems like an eternity. And before us are, are a nice, strong door with just a few small bars covering the small window. There's no way anyone can get out of this. That's the plight that we're in when we're in bondage to our sin. And so what we need is conquering grace because it's not just the circumstances we're in. It's not just that God in his grace has come and he's flung open those prison doors and he's ripped the shackles off of our hands and feet and says, there you go, I've, I've set you free. Now you're able to walk out of this prison on your own feet. It's not what God has done because each and every single one of us, we would put those shackles right back on. We would close that door and say, I'm quite happy with this place. Because in our sinful condition, we desire not God's glory and God's honor and God's freedom, what he has to offer, his righteousness. We want our own kingdom, our own world, and we want to dress up a nice prison cell. Well, all the things that we love in this world, our lusts and our desires. Because the problem of sin is a problem that affects us. It's not that we have chains in our hands or the door is a prison. We're in a prison of our own hearts, our own sinful desires. And so we need God's grace to come conquer, not our circumstances, but our heart to drag us from that prison and to show us the light of his glory and his grace. So we're so enslaved to sin that God's grace must break us free. He must conquer our rebellion. He must conquer our disobedience. He must conquer our disinterest of our coldness, our lack of seeking, our our blindness, our hard heartedness. So this grace must be conquering grace. Why well, call it conquering grace and not enabling grace, okay? It's not just he enables us to save ourselves or he enables us to seek rescue. He must conquer us so that we are saved. Now, this act of God to change a sinner's heart, to open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf, deaf is not called conquering grace in scripture, but it's often called the new birth or being born again or being born a born from above or being born of God, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter three. John chapter three, and we're going to, as we continue to reflect on the need for God's conquering grace, we're going to look at John chapter three. have a man here, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, coming to Jesus by night because he doesn't want to be found out by his friends and he wants to ask Jesus some questions. Well, here we are in John chapter 3. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I'm Going to stop right there. Nicodemus comes and he hasn't even asked his question yet. He's just trying to show Jesus that he's a friend. We know you're from God. Jesus, and Jesus begins immediately with truly, truly, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again or born from above. One cannot see, even perceive the kingdom of God unless one is born again. That is, we are blinded to the beauty, the majesty of God's kingdom. It's not just that we are unable to enter the kingdom. He's going to say that later on. We're unable to even see the kingdom of God. I don't need to understand the path there, to, to see it for what it truly is, to understand this is God's righteousness. This is where God lives, and I desire to be there, to see its beauty and its splendor and its majesty. Jesus says, unless you're born from above, unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. That's exactly what we see in this other texts, in Romans chapter 8, when it says that we're, Unable to please God. And not know submit to the law of God. It says the same thing what it says in 1 Corinthians 2.14. We're unable to understand the things of God. There's a spiritual blindness, a hardness of heart. That's why Paul says in Romans 3.10 that there's none who seeks after God because of our hardness of heart. And Jesus again repeats that No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And then he continues. Nicodemus in verse four. Nicodemus said to him, But you do not know where it comes from or where it where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus again repeats that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of the Spirit. Unless he is born from God. Unless he is born again. What the Bible calls elsewhere a new creation in Christ. Where a heart of stone has been ripped out and a heart of flesh has been put in. A heart that can see the kingdom who can understand the things of God, who is convinced of sin and sees the glory of Christ in his death and resurrection. And Jesus says that the spirit can't be controlled. No, no more than the wind can be controlled. Can't be manipulated, bottled, manufactured, or imitated. God must act, overcome our natural rebellion to him. God must show his conquering grace so that we are born again. And so we see the need of God's conquering grace because of our sinful condition. Jesus himself says right here, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. In other words, we must be born again. That's what Jesus says to Nicodemus. You need a new life. It's not just that you need a little pick-me-up. It's not just that you need to be freed from this pigeon or or prisoners, be enabled so we can help you get out of here. No, you need to be made new, a new creature, a new creation, new desires, new affections, new mind, new heart. You need to be born again. This is what I want to call here this morning, conquering grace. Okay, so that's the need for conquering grace. Now I want to look at the product of conquering grace. And Jesus has already spoken of it here, the new birth, being born again. When God conquers someone by his grace, it's like this wind has caught your sails and you are born again it's called the new birth now to see the product of God's conquering grace i want you to turn not to the gospel of john but to first john first john we're going to start in first john chapter 2 Next week especially, we're going to try to understand the mystery of the new birth. What does it mean that someone is born again? Born above. Born from above. Born of God. Just in the language itself, it conveys the idea that divine life is being imparted into the soul of man. Where man has... Now, a person has new desires, new behaviors, new loves, new hopes, new faith, a new treasure in this world because they've been born of God. Now, the in the letter here, 1 John, a number of times, the Apostle John, just like in John chapter 3, uses this phrase, being born of God, to be born again, okay, and I'm going to look at a number of different places where he uses it. And we're going to show three different categories of of what is produced in someone's life when they are born again. Okay, so we already saw in in John chapter 3, Jesus says you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You can't enter the kingdom of God if you're born again. You must be born again. It's a necessity. No one can enter God's kingdom apart from being born again, being made a new creation. We're going to see exactly the product of this new birth in first John well at least in a few different ways the first one we're going to look at is in first John 2 verse 29 first John 2:29 it says here if you know that he is righteous speaking about our Lord Jesus Christ you may be sure that everyone is who practices righteousness has been born of him. Okay? Your translation might have is born of him, and both are valid translations because in the Greek language, they had many different tenses in their verbs, not just past, present, future, Uh, but they had one verb called uh, perfect, which means that it happened in the past and it has continuing effects into the present. Okay? So you have been born of him, you you are born of him okay so it's it's something that has taken place and you still stand in that situation okay so both are valid translations, but the way the ESV puts it is focusing on that past action. if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him first John three nine look there as well first john three nine it says no one Born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Okay. Now, what's clear from this letter? We haven't read it, but in First John um, one eight, it says that if anyone is says they're without sin, they're they're a liar. They're making God out to be a liar. Okay. So these texts are not teaching. That if you are born of God, now you're sinless and uh, your life is all righteousness and you're never going to commit a sin, but rather it's saying that your life is characterized by righteousness. Those who have been born of God are characterized not by sin, but they're characterized by righteousness. They practice righteousness. They don't practice sin any longer. But rather, God has done a work in them such that they have begun and will continue to grow in righteousness, and their life is characterized by righteousness, or we could say by good works. Okay, so this is the first fruit of the new birth that we see from First John. He talks about being born of Him is good works, good works. Okay, new behaviors, new attitudes come. old behaviors and old attitudes go because a person has been born of God. Now the order here is important. This text does not say, you know, the promise of God is not you you clean up your life. You put away that bad stuff and you start doing this good stuff that I delight in. If you do all that and you get to a certain point of holiness, then I'll respond and I'll grant you the new birth and you'll be born again and you can enter the kingdom. OK, that's not Christianity. And that's a, whole, that's a whole myriad of false religions that are out there. And if you do enough, you can merit heaven. You can merit paradise. You can merit favor with God because of what you do. Christianity is the exact opposite. God has done something in you and now you're going to live this way because God is now working. He's living. He's present in your life. He's manifested himself. The divine life is now in the soul of man, and so you will practice righteousness, and you will flee from immorality. Okay, so it's because of the new birth that Christians delight in righteousness and in good works. Okay, so the first fruit in First John talking about the new birth is good works or practicing righteousness. The second one I want to show you is in first John four, seven. Okay. We're going to go in order of this phrase being born of God. Next one is in first John four, seven. It says this beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Okay, so again, notice how this verse is constructed. It's not saying if you can work up enough love in your heart for God, He will reward you and grant you the new birth and you'll be saved. Okay, that's not the point of this text. The point of this text is that God has, by His divine conquering grace, has granted the new birth such that our hearts are changed and transformed and now we love God. And in fact, if anyone says that they love God, or, or everyone says that they've been born again or one of God's children and they don't love, well, it's not true. Don't believe them because everyone who's been born of God will love God and will love one another, love the brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, so there's a specific order in this verse. Those who have been born of God will love. In fact, that order is confirmed later on in verse number, um, later in this chapter. When it talks about how God has loved us first. That is, we love him because God has first loved us. So as we consider the product of the new birth or the fruits of it, we considered good works and now we're looking at love. We must realize that of all the fruits of the new birth that we're going to be looking at, we're looking at three in total. But of all the fruits that we're going to looking at, many of them can be imitated, at least in a, to a certain extent. By people who are not genuinely born again. We know a lot of people in this world that are moral people. That do good. And they're not Christians. They don't love God, but they do good. Okay, so there is a level of outward morality, outward good works that is possible apart from the new birth. And that are sometimes we're deceived into thinking that this is the real thing, when in fact it's an imitation. We're going to be talking about the third one we're looking at is faith. Faith can also be imitated. People can say, I believe that. I believe that. But we can't peer into their heart to know for sure. But this one above the others, love, is one that is so very difficult to imitate. Because we can't decide to love something. I can't just in my will say, I'm going to love God. I'm going to love his word. I'm going to love evangelism. I'm going to love prayer. And I resolve to do it. You can't do that with love. Love is an overflow of what is in the heart. It is, it is not simply a decision to love. It's more than that. It does involve that, but it is more than that. It's passion. It's emotion. It's feeling, it's affection. And that can't be imitated. You can't imitate affection for God. You can't imitate affection for the believers, for brothers and sisters in Christ. We can try, but we will not be able to succeed. The new birth, especially this product of the new birth, cannot be imitated. As we consider this fruit of the new birth, there's one question I want us to think about. I'm not going to ask a series of questions here on this one question, really. It's a question you need to ask yourself. Is, do I love God? Do I love God? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. Do I really love God? You know, if someone was in your life close to you, would they look at your life and say, you love God. I know you love God. By what you do, by what you say, by the, by the things that, that you desire, places you desire to go and things you desire, to the things that you delight in, the things you do in your free time. Would someone say to you, you are a person who loves God? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. Because we're so easily deceived if we just look at a level of morality. We look at a level of, of ascension to the facts. I believe certain facts. But we, we, we must not be sure that we're not deceived when we consider the heart of love for God. Because look at First John 4, 8. The very next verse. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. If we love God, We will desire to be with God. We will desire to be in his word. We will desire to commune with him. We will desire to be with his people. We will desire to make his name known because we love him. We love him. You know, think about an earthly example. If I was to tell you that I love my wife, okay, that would be good. But how do I show my wife and you that I love her? apart from just, just saying the words, okay? And just being present with her when she's around. I'm, 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 I'm there, okay? I'm not being unfaithful. But how do I show them I love my wife? Now, there are certain things that as as I get to know my wife more and more, there are certain things that I perhaps would wear or certain things that I would do that I don't do anymore or that I don't wear anymore. That's not because... Um, you know, I've come to see that those things are not appropriate to wear or to do, you know, um, style and fashion is not one of my things. Okay. But to understand that my wife delights in those things, likes those things, I, I change the things that I wear and I change the things that I do for her sake. And there's things that I know that she, that she hates and doesn't want, then I won't do those things. And if there's things that I know that she loves, then I will be eager to do those things. Not to try to receive some kind of benefit for myself, okay? That's not the way it works. And so guys, if you're listening, that's not what I'm saying here. (laughs) I'm not saying, yeah, you you should give your wife a massage every day so that they'll do something to you. That's not what I'm saying. But if she loves massages, then you give her a massage every day because you love her. That's what you're going to do because you love her. And so we can understand that in a relationship between a husband and wife we are going to send love to a relationship of a parent and a child between good friends. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, do I love God? Is there evidence in my life that I love him? That I love him because that's a product of the new birth. that cannot be imitated. So you have to ask yourself, do you strive for the things that God delights in, like sharing the gospel? And do you turn from the things that God disproves of? does your life demonstrate that you love God? Okay, so that's the second product of the new birth, a love for God. The third one I want to look at, looked at good works, looked at love. The third one I want to look at is faith. Look at 1 John 5, 1. The next time that this phrase born of God is used, 1 John 5, 1. It says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. I'm going to stop there. Okay. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The exact same construction we've seen for good works and for love. Okay. We know right off the bat, there's no way our good works earn us the new birth. There's no way that our love for God earn us the new birth. And what this verse is saying, there's no way our faith earns us a new birth. That doesn't make sense, does it? This verse says that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That is, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is a product of the new birth. A product of the new birth. Now, we know, and we don't want to be confused here. We know from Scripture, Romans 10 especially, that faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. That is, there is no one converted, no one born of God, no one born again in a vacuum apart from the word of God. The gospel must be proclaimed. That's why we're so zealous to fulfill the Great Commission to proclaim the name of Christ to all the nations. Because we know apart from the proclamation of God's word, no one will be saved. And so we must go. We must go. What this verse is telling us when God. Sends, and Romans 10 says, when God sends a preacher, and that preacher goes and preaches, and people are hearing. What happens in the ears of those people as they're hearing requires a supernatural work of God. This verse helps us explain what happens so often the time because as we go and share the gospel, we hand out Bibles, we hand out tracts. And we can see it in our own experience in our past. You know, we have a cold heart and the word comes and the gospel is coming and it's not penetrating. We don't understand our need for the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't understand what sin is. And I'm not that bad of a sinner. God is not that holy. I don't need to follow Christ in that way. I see many other people who call themselves Christians and they're doing quite fine. They don't live like a disciple of Jesus Christ. Like it says in the gospels, they don't die to themselves, take up their cross and follow him. I'm doing fine. And so that gospel message just bounces off our heart. And this passage says that those who believe that Jesus and the Christ has been born of God, that is as the gospel is being preached, as we have in Romans 10, what gives our ears Hearing is that new birth where that heart is transformed. And as the gospel is being proclaimed, it's received and embraced. And the first cry of that new birth, that new life, it's like a cry of a baby coming from the mother's womb. That cry of that new life is one of faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe. I see my sin for what it is. I see the gospel, I see the necessity of Christ. I see him as beautiful and desirous. I see, I must come to him. I must cling to him. I have no hope apart from Christ. And so that understanding comes through the new birth, comes through being born again. And it's a mystery. And that's how we sing about it. That's why you sing about it. That's that second song that we sang, or the new song we're learning. Oh great God, it says, I was blinded by my sin. I had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then it says, then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. That's a description of what it's saying here. in First, John five, one, those who believe have had their eyes graciously opened by God. They've been born again. And as a product, they will practice righteousness. They will love God and love the brethren and they will repent and believe. Now we know this by experience because we all give God the credit, 100% credit for our salvation. Every single one of us as Christians give God all the glory For our salvation, we know that the wind spoken of in John three of Jesus Christ has blown and invaded our hearts and melted us so that we're compelled to come to Christ and to see him as he truly is, as our greatest need and our treasure in this life and the life to come. Now, not only do we see examples of this in our own life, we see examples of this in scripture. Think about Lydia in Acts 16, who believed the gospel. It says in Acts 16, 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Here we have 1 John 5, 1. Why did Lydia come to faith? The Lord opened her heart. The gospel was being preached and she believed. The church in Philippi, the scriptures say this. Philippians 1, For it has been granted to you, given to you, That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. They're saying that faith is a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. Second Timothy 2.24 says this about repentance, calls it a gift. It says the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Faith and repentance are gifts of God. We know that salvation is a gift of God. But even the very instruments of receiving that salvation is the gift of God. As I mentioned earlier, how we can imitate good works. We can't imitate love for God or love for others, a genuine love for others. Faith is one of those elements that can be imitated. The Bible talks about two kinds of faith. A natural faith and a saving faith. That is a faith that does not save that is not genuine, that's not legitimate, and a faith that does save. So what's the difference? Well, the Bible says that a faith that cannot save is alone. That is, it's not accompanied with the other fruit of the new birth. It's not accompanied with a love for God and love for each other. It's not accompanied with works of righteousness and a, a repudiation of what is evil. You know, what we call repentance, turning from what is wrong. Faith, rather, An assent to some facts and it is alone. It doesn't go any deeper than that. It's not the new creation that the scriptures describe. It's not the new birth. The new birth includes, at the very least, what the scriptures say in 1 John. One who practices righteousness, one who turns from evil, one who loves God and loves the brothers, and one who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a person that's hearing and wondering whether this new birth has radically transformed me, whether you're wondering before whether that love that I have for God, is that a genuine love? Do I truly love God? And if you're wondering, I wonder if that's me. I wonder if I don't love God the way that I thought I loved God. Or at least the way the scriptures define it here. It seems so very clear, so very powerful, this kind of love that the scriptures call us to as one who's been born of him. Anytime we're confronted with questions about the legitimacy of our salvation or the fruit of our salvation, the fruit of our new birth, what we're so tempted to do is, oh, I don't have enough good work, so my, my good works are lacking. So I need to go and do some more good work so I feel better about my salvation. Or it says here that that everyone who is born again believes that Jesus is the Christ. And so I'm struggling with my faith. So what I need to do is really buckle down and and have some more faith. Or I I need to love people some more because love is a fruit of the new birth. The goal, whenever we're wondering about the confidence that we have or the assurance of our salvation is not to try to run for the fruits of that salvation. We must run To deal with the root issue of that salvation. We must run to the Lord Jesus Christ. When we find sin in our life. Whether Christian or not. When we find we fall so terribly short to what God would have us to do. The goal is not to try to run and do those things. The goal is to run to Christ in confession. In repentance. Asking for forgiveness. Asking for transformation. Asking for the grace. To revive my heart to give me a heart of flesh, to give me that love, to give me that joy. Asking for God's powerful working in our life. That's what we need to do. That's what we need to do. We need to run to Christ, not dress up our prison cell, but run to Christ. So overcoming or God's conquering grace results in the new birth, results in the gift of faith, repentance, of love and Good works. Ephesians two, eight and 10 summarizes this. I'm going to read this to you. It says for by grace, you have been saved through faith. Okay. You have been saved by grace through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast for. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. See you know those words there? Created in Christ Jesus? This is talking about the new birth, new creature. Faith and love and good works have flown from this workmanship of God, created in Christ Jesus, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Nothing that we have earned, nothing that we can boast about. It is by the grace of God that we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now we're going to turn back to that passage that we began with this morning in Acts chapter 11. 11. So all of that, looking in the Gospel of John, looking at 1 John, all of that was to prepare us to understand what is going on in Acts chapter 11. I'm not going to read the whole passage again, but as we saw, as we heard... Peter is reporting back to the Jews about salvation that has come to the Gentiles and they have received the same gift of the Holy Spirit speaking in foreign languages as they did on the day of Pentecost. So they knew that the Holy Spirit had descended upon the Gentiles and they were saved. And then Acts eleven eighteen 18 says this, speaking about the Jews who heard Peter's testimony, his report. It says, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. We've already looked at what it means that God has granted repentance that leads to life. That is, the wind has blown, God's spirit has moved, and new lives have been born. And they've repented and they've believed that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one true son of God, that he is the savior of the world and that they have forgiveness of sins only through him and not through their works. That was the result of God's working in the lives of the Gentiles. So this is what we've been discussing this morning. The fruit of the new birth, repentance, faith, love, and good works. Now, why do we spend so much time unpacking that? Well, I, I don't want to focus on what they said so much in Acts 11:18 it says then to the gentiles also god has granted repentance that leads to life we've seen what that means but there's one reason why we read this text this morning and it says when they heard these things they fell silent and they glorified god they glorified god why are we spending our time considering How God saves sinners. Why do we spend time. Considering. That God grants the new birth. And through the new birth. Proceeds faith. Repentance. Love and good works. Why is that so important? Why do we spend so much time. Trying to understand the order of these things. It's for this reason here. Because they glorified God. That is. In this report that Peter gave. They saw. God's grace be given to the Gentiles. They saw this gift of repentance that leads to eternal life, an imperishable, indestructible life given to the Gentiles. They saw it. They heard it. And so they glorified God. God, you are a God to be honored and praised. You are all merciful. You're all glorious. You're all powerful. Your gospel has come down and not only have you ransomed your people Israel, but you have saved these people from all nations. What glory, what power, what greatness, what splendor. This is our God. This is the one true God. This is the one we serve and worship and adore. And when we hear how God has acted in salvation, we adore him all the more. We love him for who he is. We love him for what he has done. And so they praise his, the new birth. This a gift that God has given them. They praise God's conquering grace what sometimes is called irresistible grace, God's overcoming grace. And as we increase in our knowledge of God, you know, they they knew this before. They knew that God grants life that leads to repentance or God grants repentance that leads to life. They knew that. That's why they said it. But when they see it manifest, when they learn more about how God is working in this world among all the peoples, causes them to glorify God more. And the same thing too, as we consider the mystery of God, how we impart saving faith, how he uptakes the gospel as being proclaimed and then awakens our hearts to understand it and receive it. When we understand what God is doing behind the scenes, it causes us to adore him all the more. Because our love abounds to God, not in a vacuum, not with some zap from heaven, our love for God was going to increase and be kindled as we know him more and more, as we know what he has done, not just to us, but to others. And so we're going to praise him. We're going to glorify him. And so they glorified God because they saw how he grants life, how he powerfully overcame the Gentiles resistance and rebellion, their idolatry and conquered their hearts through the new birth. And then we saw how the new birth grants love and faith and good works and really orients our life, not around the things of the flesh, not around ourselves, but around God, around him. We've heard a lot from Charles Spurgeon over this series. He was a great Baptist preacher back in the 1800s. And the reason why we've heard so many quotes from Charles Spurgeon is because he loved these truths and he preached them so often. I want to read another, another quote from him today. He says, I believe... That Christ came into the world, not to put men into a savable state, but into a saved state, not to mean by conquering grace, not to put them where they could save themselves. But do the work in them and for them from first to last. If I did not believe that there was might going forth with the word of Jesus, which makes men willing and which turns them from the error of their ways by the mighty, overwhelming, constraining force of divine influence, I should cease the glory in the cross of Christ. He loved these truths so very much. I love these truths so very much. And many other saints all throughout the ages love these truths so very much. And why? Because they cause us to glorify in the cross of Christ. To glory in what Jesus has done. To glory in what the Father has planned and what the Son has executed and that the Spirit is now working to apply to the hearts of people, to breathe new life, to make people alive, to understand these truths. Gives us such confidence to go and to proclaim the word of Christ. Gives such confidence in the powerfulness of our God and his ability to turn rebel sinners like me, like you, into trophies of his grace and of his mercy. So ask yourself, do you love this God? Do you see his greatness? Do you revel in his might? And I pray that God would grant us all eyes to see his majesty, his beauty, his power and authority when it comes to this act of salvation. Let's pray. God, as we consider this text this morning. I had one goal. Is to present you and your work in such a way that we would glorify you. Because, God, that's what your scriptures seek to do. To glorify you. God, there is nothing more practical for us here this morning than to glorify in your work, in your person, and what you have done, and what you are going to do. There's nothing that we need more this morning than to see you high and exalted and lifted up for who you truly are. A God who overcomes the desperate situation of our sin, the hopelessness of it all the inability of it all, who overcomes that resistance, who overcomes that um, rebellion and conquers our heart with the new birth, being born again. Oh God, I do pray that each and every one of us would not have an attitude of waiting, sitting back and saying, well, I guess God is not working in me. I guess he hasn't done that in me. Oh God, may we pay attention to Jesus' call to Nicodemus. You must be born again. God, I pray that we would see you as glorious and exalted and as the giver of salvation, that we would run to you as our only hope. That we would run to you in prayer. We would run to your word to examine these things. That we might be convicted of our sin We might see our desperate need apart from your saving grace cry to you for salvation. Oh God, open our eyes to see your might and your power and your wisdom and your sovereignty as you work in salvation. May we rejoice in you. May you humble us as we give you all the glory and honor and praise. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.